Switching mediation providers might seem like a pain in the ass, but it doesn't have to be. If you're thinking of making the transition from Mopub to IronSource, we've got you covered. First, we've created a dedicated tool that removes the manual work when migrating to IronSource mediation. Second, we'll be holding workshops with IronSource experts where you can have all your migration needs taken care of. And if you want to do it yourself, we also have technical documentation for migrating to IronSource mediation in our Knowledge Center. To learn more about these initiatives and begin monetizing with IronSource today, head to www.is.com forward slash migrate. That's www.is.com forward slash migrate. It's easy to make good choices when you have good insights, right? Well, AppSlyer's open platform provides the measurement, analytics, engagement, and fraud protection technologies you need to get the answers to all of your questions and make good choices for your business and customers. Is customer privacy important for you? Good. With AppSlyer, you can accurately measure your marketing while protecting customer privacy. Bringing in new customers is great. Getting accurate insights while protecting your customers' privacy is even better. AppSlyer's privacy-preserving measurement and cost aggregation technologies give you insights you can count on across channels, platforms, and devices. And here's something we all agree on. When it comes to the marketing, you should only pay for what works. AppSlyer's incremental lift testing makes it easy to make good choices for your marketing budget through accurate, unbiased insights into the true value of your marketing outcomes. Are you ready to start making good choices? Great. Go to appslier.com and get yourself an attribution partner you deserve. Welcome, everybody, to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Mishka Katkov, and today I have a returning guest back on the podcast, Joachim Akran, founder of Next Games, uh, a, a mobile gaming company. If you don't know Next Games, a mobile gaming company here in Helsinki that ended up IPOing to local Nasdaq. Also known probably better now as founder of Elite Game Developers, uh, a fantastic website and a podcast with all the wealth of knowledge you need to run, to start, run, and and exit a game company, if you will. Joachim is also an, a prominent angel investor through his syndicate and a venture partner at Play Ventures. So many hats. You definitely did not, did not retire after next games. Joachim, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Miska. Yeah, I'm I'm just now contemplating <laughs> when I can retire. <laughs> also, I forgot that you wrote a book. Yes, that as well. Yeah. Well, what's the book called? Uh, Long Term Game. How to build a video games company. It's on Amazon, so you Perfect. can get it Link on will all be the in formats. Great. So, so Joachim is the busiest uh, exited executive that I know. <laughs> now he's on the podcast. And we're going to talk about raising funds in 2022. So Joachim, you are investing a lot, both um, you know as part of Play, as well as through your um, investment syndicate vehicle, which I'm a happy member of. Now... I want to start with the uh, with, with the question is like, can you raise money in 2022 if you don't have a Web3 slash blockchain game? It's an excellent start, actually. <laughs> it's a, um, I think so. I think like gaming VCs are still looking at like backing the best teams. Um, 
who can show that they can execute. I think that's not gone anywhere. Um, and and besides the, the having a team, I think key there should be that you have a playable in mind or that something you can show. Um, that's always the the biggest help because like everything that you're going to be showing to investors is going to reflect back to like how you're thinking about things. So investors don't necessarily look at like specific details about the company like very in a focused mind i think one of those ones is the idea for sure but it always reflects back to the founders like what are the founders wanting to do Uh, and then teams are what venture capital investors usually back anyways but um then thinking about the the whole like what's been happening recently like uh, like with the the X peak mm-hmm. folks getting these insane valuations, I think because they left peak and they wanted to still build these match three games uh, like Royal Match because uh, they know them so well they can execute on that level. So that's what I'm talking about here when I'm thinking about the, the execution. Um, so I I don't think they can go wrong that easily uh, versus somebody who's been doing let's say uh, some casual games and suddenly they're they're thinking about doing you know 4x games i I think there you have the mix-up of of an investor even thinking Mm -hmm. about okay why are these guys actually wanting to do it like is there an opportunity here in the market or is it just pleasing their own idea that this is what they always wanted to do in their own studio and now they have the chance i think that's that's not going to be back that's that that money will go to the web tree unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that, um, i think it's so much team uh, what the team wants to do yeah i had a shit i had a question in my mind i didn't want to break your flow but now i forgot the question um, yeah, we'll get back to it. <laughs> it, was, it was probably a really good question. Um, but yeah, yeah, okay, so so I understand that part. Um, how important, uh, okay, here, here was the question. It came back. Um, when I look at the market and in, in terms of like how it has evolved, especially post IDFA, how much do investors look at the mobile market and find those sort of a genres that are open for competition and genres that isn't? What I mean by that is, you mentioned 4X games. I could mention RPG games is another one. Like these are our social casino games. Like these are games that are having a lot of problems when it comes to downloads uh, in the market because of, you know, essentially inability to target in the same way as you could just a year ago. How much do investors kind of look at different genres on mobile? Or is it just, you know, here's a team, they have an expertise in something, and let's say they've been building Forex games before, well, let's continue building Forex games, even though we know that not a lot of Forex games are even scaling from the top publishers. Yeah, that's really good question. I think it really depends on the, the category and like the size of the audience in that category. Like Match 3 is probably the biggest on mobile anyways. Um, yes. Uh, so... 4X is actually the biggest, but yes. Yeah, well, I'm revenue. just thinking... Yeah, yeah. Thinking about the audience size, like uh, how, yeah, 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 and and you're gonna be struggling with uh, like, what is the thing that you're gonna be doing next in that genre that really makes sense? I think that's part of the pitch mm. always. I think uh, the Dream Games didn't go out and pitch with, yeah, we're gonna do a puzzle game, and that's it. 
they must have elaborated on like what are the certain key aspects that the competition in that red ocean category are failing to do for the audience to to move on to the next thing to to remain relevant to that audience so i I think the dream games really like pitched how they can be relevant in that category yeah that's that's key yeah. So essentially, you're saying like having a genre expertise. But on the other hand, there was a Spike Games just recently raised 50 mil for a seed round, uh, and they have the sort of a Coin Master uh, follow up. Looks very similar than Coin Master and also X Peak. So, so there's um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I don't think Peak made Coin Master, so that's uh, it's an no. interesting <laughs> setup. So yeah, but let's see. Let's see what happens. I I don't. I haven't played the, the game yet. I don't yeah. know if it's like globally launched. From yeah, Spike it's, yet. it's still in soft launch. Griffin is, is definitely very, very bullish on it. But no, no, that, that, was, that was really the question because I was kind of like thinking about an, an almost like, not almost, I actually did a framework of, of big opportunity, low opportunity games on mobile. And I was actually talking to one of the, um, one of the better, not better, let's just say one of the best funds in the, uh, in the whole industry. Uh, and they haven't seen something like that before, so that kind of made me question: is like, how do you how do you break down, or you, do you just say mobile, and then that's that's mobile? <laughs> it's like, are we gonna look a little bit deeper under mobile? Should we target, you know, should we exclude China? Should we exclude Japan? And like, kind of look at different markets and different categories. Yeah. They're like, so yeah. we kind of went through the model. Like, oh, this is really interesting. Can you send this us? So, so that was. Yeah. It, it doesn't seem that there's same type of uh, of detailed analysis on on, on mm. this that that i thought there would be anyways yeah. um yeah. i wanted to ask you because what i what i've noticed in just the past quarter or so is the shift to blockchain gaming uh with investors and it has been incredibly fast like it it, it I, i've never you know I've, not that i've been too long in this in this industry but i've never seen from a VC perspective, from funding perspective, the shift happened so quickly, where where the FOMO just went off the off the hook. Can yeah. you can you kind of talk about why that happened? Yeah, this is like from my perspective. I, I I'm thinking like two two things that mattered here is uh, some of the the bigger funds who've deployed capital to actually back crypto projects have shifted their focus towards to backing gaming now and uh, this happened last year with uh, like sky mavis raising a mega round uh with a16z mm-hmm. i think that those kind of headlines really escalate things and everybody who was doing uh decentralized finance investing uh in crypto have now realized that actually gaming studios in crypto have matured to a level where investing makes sense and uh, everybody's pulling the trigger at the same time i I think this like that that happened so quickly uh so the capital was there they were waiting for the right products and when uh, axie infinity landed it was like off to the races for everybody um I, i think the second part here is that there have been several more experienced game teams uh, either pivoting or forming new companies um, so I, I think there's there's a there's a commoditization happening like my uh, my colleague at play ventures anton bachman just mm-hmm. recently told me this this interesting point that he he definitely believes that 
blockchain understanding won't be the big thing for companies uh, going forward, but it's more the game design that will be scarce as a rare skill, like creating game uh, economies, the tokenomics for a game, because uh, these games should have that life cycle that I, I personally believe uh, free to play, uh, like sustainability, longevity will be adapted into crypto gaming as we go forward and see these projects that want to have those 5, 10, 15 year uh, life cycles. So um, I think that has been realized as well. So those teams that are pivoting away from free to play into crypto, they're going to get a lot of attention as well from investors. Mm. So the te- you mentioned teams that are pivoting from crypto or to crypto? Uh, to crypto from doing free to play because that's mm-hmm. happening a lot now. Do so, you see and, and they're capable game teams. So. Yeah. Do you um this is this is an interesting part because there's not a lot of people the game development people who know anything about blockchain gaming. So let's just be honest, it's so new. So you know, what are what are the uh, what are the investors looking at when they're looking at these teams that are pivoting or going to crypto are they looking for teams that can ship fast a game and and kind of approach it through that free-to-play model or are they looking for more like you know high quality development studios that have probably you know some double a or even triple a experience from before yeah that's a good question i think it differs so much per investor yeah like my mentality is so much on the early stage yeah thinking about the team and what they're doing so i'm pretty bullish on teams who've been working hyper casual and then they go after the building crypto projects with that same quick rapid development mentality uh, one of my big fans that or i'm a big, big fan of lucky cat who who've really done an amazing job with uh, panzer dogs i was just recently talking with the ceo like that they actually continued making hyper casual games and this was another project because you know how they work they mm-hmm. have several p- teams working on hyper casual products at the same time and they're looking at the kpis after a week of development or something crazy and so this was sort of like one of those projects in the pipeline and it just started doing really well with the traction from the community uh, the nft sale that they did so now it's sort of uh, a big deal for that company um, Unfortunately, they sold the company already, so it's, a, it's an interesting case. But the, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's cool. an interesting approach because I, I've been like I, I understand the logic be, that you have behind developers who have done hyper casual, and the whole allure is prove what you're doing fast. And the whole thesis is like these companies were most likely to succeed, let's say in casual games or arcade games or or even like a light mid core games because they can find that thing that works really quickly and double down on it. The problem that I have with hyper casual develop no, I don't have problems with hyper casual developers. The uh, the what hyper casual developers don't have is like they're they're like prototyping teams. They don't do live services. They don't they they're not about sustainability and often the games are even published by the hyper casual publishers. So essentially you have a developer that just slams a, a prototype and then all the magic is happening somewhere else at the Homa games or Voodoo games or Good Job games or you name it. So I kind of like, 
I kind of don't see other expertise than prototyping skills uh, with, with hyper-casual developers. And then when we're talking about blockchain games, they're almost like communities. Like They have to be really great on different sort of a live operations, like community-driven live services. That is almost like you know the, the, the Riot model, if you will, because they're like so community-focused, almost like a hardcore uh, gaming model. Where, where So this is kind of like my theorization around it. And um, mm. yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I get yeah. your point. I get your point. Yeah, I, I think that the thing with, uh, with this rapid development that they live and breathe, yeah. these ca- hyper-casual developers, is that they've adapted a mindset of learning really quickly. Like their learning cycle is insane. In yeah, those weekly. Companies. Yeah, so if they, you know, if they need to start publishing, you know, building a publishing organization, running live ops, they're going to apply the same learning cycle to that. And I, I think they're going to do really well mm. uh, just because they are just in that mindset that they won't stop how, shipping. How do this is this is going a little bit to blockchain game, but how do you how do you te- like because blockchain games are on web, you know, they're on browsers. So how does that hyper casual model of, of let's build something quickly and test it work on the web? Because the whole idea of let's build something and test it is really to see the marketability and the and the retention. Yep. Yeah, of course, like the whole user experience of these games is miserable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like uh, I, I, I'm struggling like every day to, to, to play try anything. out these games. Yeah, yeah it's impossible. Out. It's not like, you know, just install a, an app and start playing. Um, that the industry hasn't yet needed to figure that out uh, because they they are still most of these products are running with small DAUs uh, and then you have a couple of bigger ones like Axie uh, mm-hmm. where it's a very savvy audience who who are playing it for motivations regarding the speculative regarding the play to earn uh, that area but when it comes to to a casual person just wanting to explore things it's tough it's yeah. super tough what what yeah. i what i hate about blockchain games is the the incredible scammy nature of buy this nft for hundreds of dollars before the game is done and <laughs> it makes no sense and then and then the game might come in like 2 to 3 quarters later after you already made a quite a significant investment, you know, size of a PlayStation Five almost, and yeah. it's it's like I I can't fathom that. And then to to my you know, in my opinion, that's just that that's just insane, you know, global market that is you know already going down, and then people just have uh, exorbitant amount of cryptocurrencies that they can put in on on these on these assets just with the belief that they will go up eventually. So there's yeah. like a speculative nature. Anyway, uh, this is this is blockchain talks, and 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 with these type of things that you know, uh, common that that are in my opinion a little bit of a common sense. It's just very weird to see investors go all in on something that is wildly unproven and unproven also in terms of sustainability. And I've I've seen many many investors kind of uh, shun mobile gaming, which is not only fifty five percent of all game revenues. Is also you know a free-to-play model, uh, very proven. And yes, there are challenges in scaling after insanely successful 2020 year. But it, it, it's kind of weird that that with something that works, we're like, well, that's boring and it's done. Let's talk about something that we have no proof of 
and let's invest more than we've invested ever into something that actually works. Like that, that part yeah. is like, as, a, as just building a risk portfolio seems really weird. Yeah, I think like this is, this is the thing with, with backing this, well, the venture route for any startup is that you go from one stage to another, you're graduating mm-hmm. with the company to raise the next pre-seed, seed, series A. Yes. It's like, you look at a casual mobile studio, okay, they raise the pre-seed one million. They need to prove a game works before they go to the next level. Mm-hmm. Oft, oftentimes, that's that's required. You might still be that hey, they they actually built a, a stellar team. They're doing the right things. They have some KPIs that seem like they're onto something here. Let's put in the next round, the seed round. So they graduate to that. Series A a lot harder already for the traditional free to play. Then you look at the the web tree. Um, traction mm-hmm. you sell sell 20,000 nfts uh is you get two million into the company like that's that's the reality of today it might not be you know 12 months down the line anymore possible uh in that that sort of happening to everybody Mo- most likely won't happen but it's still happening so i think that's that's part of the reason why graduating to these next levels from pre-seed, seed, series A in the crypto space is a lot more quicker. Um, but they're still going through those those phases as well. Yeah. But they're going just quicker, quicker right now. I understand. So it's like the validation. Essentially, you're making already significant revenue, even like at the point when you have a demo done. Like like yeah. your your pre-seed can be of of the size of the NFT sales. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that makes it a lot more different from free to play all right well that's that's what's going on now so so just to summarize when in market like we're talking about the teams that that are grad you know graduating from one stage to another proving out their kpis like first building a solid team uh then having a first set of solid kpis then proving out that they can actually scale against those kpis and raising against that like that's that's still happening no matter what the platform uh but the the rise of blockchain is a lot of driven by probably FOMO and, and a lot of it also just because it's relatively easy to prove out traction with with yes. the market being so crazy about NFTs that it doesn't almost matter what, what's going on. You can you can sell worth yeah. of millions really quickly just by having a website. Yeah, and I, I think there's like the best investors are super smart, so they want to see that traction. Um, so I, I think there is just so much interesting stuff ha- stuff happening in web3 which doesn't happen in free to play right now so yeah there you go <laughs> yeah okay let's talk about a little bit about investors and, and kind of like for folks who are not into into this so deeply uh angel investors vcs publishers strategic investors like can you talk about each of those and when is it optimal to have each of them in your cap table? Because this is this is something even when I started, you know, this entrepreneurial route, not understanding these sort of um, unsaid truths <laughs> that exist and like, oh, you don't want to have strategics now. You're like, what? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, why, why don't I want to have them? These type of things are like, <laughs> it's uh, a, yeah. it's a, and then you know, with angels, like, oh, you want to do the first round with angels only? It's the best way to move forward. Why? Or, or like the different types of VCs. So, so can you can you a little bit talk about that? Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, I, I think the whole distinction, it's kind of easy to think about in a way like, who do you want on your cap table? I, I think it depends on what kind of support you want to build around the company. Um, some people want to get the money and run, so they, they're capable, they bring in a top tier VC fund, maybe even somebody who doesn't have gaming experience, they get great terms, uh, they get the money and they're happy. Mm-hmm. But some, some founders uh, want partners in the business. So as an investor, I'm currently working with like some two dozen companies on a weekly or monthly basis. So I, Two I dozen on a weekly really basis? Now, probably I would say like some of them on a weekly and then most of them I'm, I'm less involved. So, but I do have something going on on a monthly basis, at least with all of them. Um, but yeah, like when a founder group or a company brings on many investors in a round uh, on the cap table, so you have, you're going to, you're going to have several people helping but you're also going to have several networks to utilize for hiring for feedback uh, and i think what you really want to do is get people who you can troubleshoot uh, stuff with um, so because startups always have many problems and issues i like just working with all these companies it's never like hey everything's going great like um you always want to be paranoid early on about it's the not like that huh weird <laughs> Man. yeah yeah we've all gone through it so um, but but if, if you have capable partners on your cap table and mm-hmm. they're involved you can pull them in uh to troubleshoot stuff uh, yeah you can get a lot of help from them but like then thinking about like one at a time here so you you mentioned all different kind of investors you could raise money from so first angel investors i think they're usually the first money that you take uh they're either previous operators former gaming executives former founders mm-hmm. uh, they're bringing smaller money to the table but uh, still giving a lot of help and advice basically they're paying you to get like for them to be involved uh, and i've always prefer- preferred to join as an angel versus being an advisor, because it, it gives me that real feeling of having the skin in the game uh, versus what the advisor is doing. Um, you can be definitely like a professional advisor for startups, but I, I, I just prefer more like doubling down with my own risk in the company. But yeah, then VCs, uh, they're different because they usually have a fund which they've raised from uh, externals like limited partners uh, like wealthy individuals wealthy institutions and they've given the vcs a mandate to see great target investments companies that could return the fund and then then make a lot of profit so i, I think that's that's one of those big factors here how you can differentiate angels and vcs is that let's say a vc has a 50 50 million dollar fund and they get an exit with a company that was sold for a hundred million, and they own twenty percent. Mm-hmm. So they get 20, 20 million out of that twenty percent out of the hundred million. But the twenty x return here out of like let's say one million invested, that's great. 
but it still won't return the fund. So you're going to be waiting for another 30 million to get that 50 million returned before you can see profits. So that's one of those rules that you usually have with VCs mm-hmm. uh, with their funds. And, and because of this, the investors who are venture capital investors, they're going to be more picky on where they put their money into because they can't rely on small investment wins. Uh, they have to look at these home run cases where the math really starts working and they can return the fund. Uh, so angels don't need to be as picky because with each e- exit, like if they're investing uh, 25,000 and it's 2x, they get profit of 25,000. So they don't need to return any funds so that's the main difference there and then you asked about the the publisher and the strategics Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, uh, because they're usually these industry uh, companies who can support developers uh, through all their efforts in publishing in the development they can offer resources whatnot which angels and vcs can't do but when you bring on one of these strategics on your cap table, I think the main difference there is that these companies will still have their own agenda where they're building their own business for publishing games to to like to to be at a point where it makes sense for them that they actually invested in you that what is the added advantage of you uh, being in in their portfolio so I think strategics can work really well in many cases, uh, but when things start going bad, it's not always obvious that a street strategic will be, you know, saving you and your company versus what angels and VCs often might say that hey, we're gonna stick around and see if the pivot will work or whatnot. But the the people at the strategic company might have left who did the investment mm-hmm. to you guys <laughs> early on the team is totally different they don't care about what the, the the guys who were there before were doing so like all of those kind of things can happen when things go wrong so that's what i'm worried about usually with strategics do the um so regarding the strategics uh let's you know by strategic what we mean is existing top gaming companies um so you know, we know that Supercell has been doing a lot of strategic investments. There's the Raya's, the Netties, the Tencent's, and all those other ones that are that are very active in, in the strategics. Um, what does it mean for your valuation to have a strategic? Because that that is also something that the VCs tend to raise. It's like, hey, um, you don't want a strategic now because of the valuation impact. Like, it sets a ceiling. It could. It really depends so much who, who the strategic is. Uh, like, you know, you could have a strategic who is very passive, you could have a strategic who is going to be super active with uh, helping you scale the company, uh, or you could have a strategic who has uh, actually an agenda to actually acquire 51% of your company down the line. So, yeah, I, I think any VC who is looking at your company cap table where you have strategics there, they're going to be evaluating you based on like what is the agenda of the strategic there. Yeah, and um, and and okay. So so with angels, they're kind of like 
in many sense risk-free, but you you do have to carry a little bit of a of a name and recognition to be able to pull a lot of a lot of angel investors uh, because uh, they are well, you know. And then you have to t- take several angel investors because their ticket sizes tend to be smaller. So it really works in the uh, in the sort of a pre-seed and maybe even a seed stage. And then yeah. when going to when going with VCs, so they are looking for growth. Um, what so can you talk a little bit about gaming VCs like a play ventures is a perfect example of a very gaming focused uh, VCs of course there's others that so we're talking about Griffin makers fund Bitcraft um, all great funds what is the difference between a, a sort of a industry focused VC and a, and a little bit of like a generalist VC like the uh, the index funds um, you know the uh, Boldertons and and Bessemer's and all the other ones. Yeah, really good question. I think when it comes to these gaming VCs, it's usually previous operators, gaming executives, founders who have turned into VCs. Um, I I really like if I would be a founder, I would definitely prefer these kind of people. Back in the day with Next Games, there wasn't really anybody else besides London Venture Partners. Uh, and initial capital uh, who just had started yeah that's true work yeah so it it was was super early uh but now you know there's a bunch of them like dozens and dozens of Mm -hmm. gaming vcs um because they they're they're really good at that kind of troubleshooting that i talked about earlier when you have those problems because they're gonna happen like you want to have people who have operational experience so that they can really like come in and help you out um, but then uh, what I would do here is not just pick a firm to work with uh, I'd rather do a lot of research on the firm the people at the firm talk to to the founders who've raised money from those those funds and ask about the people there because uh, I would rather like want the whole industry of, of gaming startups to shift to talk about the individuals, the partners, and not about like a, a brand uh, per se, like a hey we want we want to raise from this fund, but rather say we want to raise from this person because mm-hmm. you know that's the person who is going to be helping you with this troubleshooting everything. They're going to be going through the 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 troubled times with you um, I would say like you always want to think about not bringing only money in but you want to think about the help that comes with that money and then you talked about the the generalist VC there um, I think early stage you ro- really want to pick a, a gaming VC that has the operational experience when you're pre numbers you're not growing yet uh, you, you want that rain like when there's the issue of hey do we need to pivot or not the generalist vc won't really have an opinion there necessarily similarly that your gaming vc will have when they're seeing so many similar situations but when you do hit the numbers and you're growing the company scaling ua uh, what whatever mm-hmm. uh, generalist vc usually is even better because they will have people who are specialized at Grow, growing companies you know to 
thousand people, for instance, <laughs> like a really hard thing to, you know, do. I I would like be struggling with that. So, uh, like as a VC, because I've never <laughs> gone over like hundred and fifty people. So how do you actually do that? Yeah. So then, generalist VCs are gonna have uh, former executives from big companies outside of gaming who can help you operationally with that kind of stuff. What kind of a help are you? Like, what is it? What is it that a founder should be really expecting? Because what I've noticed is, is that when you're picking up your VC or not picking up, let's say you're in a fortunate enough position where you have several VCs and, and you're kind of discussing, and then and you start working with the VC. Um, not a lot of people are on the clear what is the role of a VC and a founder in the sense that. It can be easily misconstrued as, well, you know, um, I report to this person. He's like an, my new executive because people are coming from companies and this is their first company. And they don't perhaps quite understand what the help can be from a VC. Like, so like you. Yeah, yeah I, I think I get what you mean. So mm-hmm. a founder is thinking that the VC is their new boss mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah, but you have uh, yeah. you have, you know checkups they're asking when the build is going to be done they're giving feedback yep. on the build you're like this is an executive <laughs> yes man that's so true uh and it's it's really hard to to break out of that loop because uh, you're anyways you're anyways relying them to back you in the hard times with cash perhaps mm-hmm. like like you know we're gonna run out of money in three months like you you need to be in good favors with this VC. Yeah, it's an it's an executive. They're like just like executives, they support yeah. your your programs, and and that's really what what the challenging part I think in the relationship if you if you don't form it uh, properly is like it stays at that level. You know, yeah. it's it's an yeah. executive that gives you air cover to move forward in not <laughs> across companies. You know, like you're just yeah, one company, but it's like it's almost like working in a corporation. It could feel like it. Yeah, offsites and nice dinners won't help. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> again, again, you're like, what's the difference between the exact? Like, you have a much bigger upside, yeah, yeah. but yeah. it's then it's like running a division, you know? Yeah, it, it, I think it is a relationship where mm-hmm. it's pretty hard to actually break, most likely. Um, I think showing showing the best out of this kind of vulnerability that you're at least showing that you really care about things because you've gone through similar issues before where it was super hard mm-hmm. um, but yeah I, I totally hear you it's, it is it is hard to break out of that mentality but you should definitely think about it more as a as a partner who is building the business with you uh, who is there to help you succeed <laughs> like and like like i would say like this this movement of uh founder friendly uh vcs was something that was happening in in the silicon valley uh, mm-hmm. space like 5 years ago where everybody was saying that we're founder friendly <laughs> uh, i think you know what does that I, even I think mean we can, yeah we can i i think we can fall back to a, a situation where you still need to say that if you're not you know showing that you're actually a, a partner in the business and not 
like running the show. Yeah, I, I can, I can, you know, I'm not going to call names. There are VCs that are very par- founder friendly, and the way I see what founder friendly means is you're going to support me in my decision, even though it is not the most favorable for you as a fund. Yes. That yeah, is being a founder friendly. That, that's like, yeah. who's going to come in first? You're like, well, the fund comes first and then you come second. So I'm founder friendly. <laughs> like, I'm, like whenever ever I'm taking part in a board meeting, yeah. uh, one of the, the comments that I always send is like, like, I will support you with whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. This is what I say to the founder. But the founder needs to bring up their, their uh, this is what they want to do in the board material for instance mm-hmm. they can't leave it up for a discussion that you know there's all sorts of things happening let's discuss yeah that's, yeah, yeah. that's not good like I, i'd rather like support whatever you're doing and give feedback on your decision but i won't uh, back down from supporting you yeah the the thing what i why i brought the other uh, fact of of um of working with a VC, I think it's really important because it it took me pro- almost two years, even working with with VCs who I know and knew before starting a company, is that it only, in my experience, it only works if you're vulnerable, and you're really telling about the problems that are not technical, that are not you know design or art related or hiring related, but real problems. Like, and they usually in any company, no matter what, the real problems are people problems. And mm, I yeah. think the challenge is because the perception, the way it's structured and the way most of the VCs meetings, you know, VC cooperation happens is that they are your boss. And if I'd be in a corporation, I wouldn't feel as comfortable talking about people problems. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. It's like you're running a business here, not a kindergarten or, you know, that's like a, that's a worse things to say. Like, but it's, it's something that you're expected to deal with uh, and just focus on deliverance uh, versus, versus when you're running a, I don't know, when you're running a company, that's, that's where you will be. Like there's, there's just totally different types of um, expectations from you and from your co-founders and there's a lot of pressure. Uh, the, the resources are totally different. Like there's a there's a clock that is not a type of clock that that your executive can you know you know kind of reset it. You just start a new project. No, you actually have funding that can run out and you go out of business and you have to fire all the people that he hired, uh, which is you know huge stress. And yeah. le- leveling on that level took me personally a long time, even though I knew the people I'm working with. So that's the kind of a thing that I don't know with how it works with other founders. If you are a founder, I would definitely uh, encourage finding that sooner rather than later. Because when I came clean of, of like, well, this is actually the problem. Like, I don't know how to solve this, not how to solve that, which were, you know, leadership problems, people problems. Then then the answer from Easy was like, well, of course, dude, this is why we're here. We're here to help you on, on these type of things. And like, I didn't know. I thought you were just here to 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 give me money and and um, and help with, with resourcing and scaling and staffing and and you know that kind of stuff, but but actually, it's 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 very very broad help that you can get, and it's fantastic perspectives. You know, I had today. Well, this is technically my second VC meeting, and I met with the Angel, and yeah, this is the third one today. But even now, like I'm just much more open, and we can talk about about the issues with Angels. It's fantastic because some of them are again uh, founders or, or you know doing the, this this thing, or some of them have done it, 
and you can ask them questions that are super detailed and like, did this happen to you when you were doing this? And they kind of go through their experience. And with VCs, even though some of them haven't started companies, not, not every VC is an ex games founder and it's good that they're not, they're great at listening and they kind of reflect you and give you a perspective. They're like, well, based on what you're saying, things could be this and that. And they can kind of voice out if something that happened is okay or not. Like, I think this is not okay. What do you think? And you can just tell them what happened. They're like, yeah, I think you're right. It shouldn't be. And then so forth and so forth. So uh, I think you need to, as a founder, get as quickly as possible to that situation because that's where the real value added and the real help will, will come in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, this is the thing that I often think about that I heard a few years ago yeah. from one of the founders that uh, Mich- Mitch Lasky was yep. a, a VC Benchmark. at Benchmark. Yeah. Um, he told in their first board meeting that, you know, I don't want to spend any time on an update. Where I want to spend time is on the, the problems that you're facing. This was what the, he said to the CEO. Yeah. That maximizing time on those things. But Joachim, you, know. you mentioned that before and you told me that way before I opened up. And the thing is, like, it's still, if it comes from a from a mouth of an executive, I get it. But we, if we haven't formed that relationship of vulnerability, you're not going to get the real problems. You're not going to get things like, I'm embarrassed, but I think this is a problem type of thing. Yeah, so, it could be. So yeah, you kind of have to get to that point. And I was just curious, since yeah. you work with so many... So with so many founders, how do you get them to open up? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I just show that like, I'm, you know, not going to be, you know, bossing them around at all. I think that's key there. Uh, That my my approach is to actually make them succeed. Uh, And it's truly that, that I don't have any hidden agenda or I'm not really thinking about anything that could hurt them with what they're trying to do yeah i don't yeah it's probably something i haven't really thought about like how it works but yeah um yeah yeah i think i think it's uh i think it's it's interesting um yeah it's uh it, it, it's it's a fascinating part and I, I would just like encourage all the uh all the founders but also the vcs to kind of um open up the door for, for that part because i think there's uh there's just a lot of a lot of help a lot of help with that um yeah one water thing mm-hmm. there, I think what what really helps is that like I don't I don't have you know that kind of like a mandate to fire anybody, and I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, so I think that sort of lifts a kind of one of those uh, like burdens from me actually caring about these people that they succeed. Yeah. And just seeing that they they grow and they develop, and where I can help them do that is. I, I don't know if it's a, here. I, I'll be honest. I don't know. Like to me, it's not. That's not. You know, that's not the thing. Even even when working in corporations, like being fired is not not really the one. It's more like, it's like a, it's a problem that I'm embarrassed to have, and I don't even want to talk of that. It's a problem, so I'm gonna just deal with it. Type of a thing, and yeah. t- oftentimes these are the people problem. This is what all the leadership books are about, and. Um, and I think it's really important to, to discuss those things and, and provide just perspective and listen. And, and what what my realization kind of like where I realized that I can be vulnerable with, with these type of things was just kind of observing how, like <laughs> observing how I approach this because, you know, I've also invested in a couple of companies and how I support these, you know, some of these founders. 
uh, with, with my angel investor perspective. And I was like, shit, I really want to just help. And I don't look at them in bad way in anything that they say. And I just really, really want to help. And I don't know what they're going through. And I was like, well, that's the same thing as, as these, you know, my investors are, are doing as well. They just want to help. And kind of realizing that part um, makes you much more open to, to all kinds of, um, all kinds of, you know, relationship improvements and just getting more and more help from that. Anyways, um, I'm moving forward from, from kind of like, I have a lot of questions. Like, what do you think about crowdfunding or funding through tokens? Well, it's really interesting options. Um, I think the biggest reason to not prefer these options in the early stages is that like, you're not going to get the benefit from getting these experienced investors to help you build a company. Uh, you're going to get a community. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Like You're going to kickstart a community there. So like, I would do both in optimal cases where you would get that uh, help of the investor the VC or the angel to come on board to help build a business and then you kickstart kick the community as well with those initiatives like one is dilutive for you and the other isn't so yeah pursuing both is great I, I think in free to play uh, neither crowdfunding and tokens have really shown to work uh, let's see what happens with the token space how it explodes into encompassing those companies that aren't doing crypto games but it's interesting I, I would I would definitely look into all of these options nowadays for these companies yeah yeah it's um th that's that's just an interesting part um here's 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 an interesting question how do investors find investees like how do you how do you source those because you know how <laughs> that's Hey, uh, sorry for interrupting this podcast, but do you need funds to finish, release, or promote your game? If that's the case, Exola Funding Club got you covered. It's the no-cost matching service that gets your game in front of qualified publishers and investors in one simple four-step process. Step number one, you create an account. Step number two, you submit your most up-to-date playable build, a pitch deck, and a gameplay video. Step number three, your game gets screened in internally by Exola's industry experts within just two weeks. And step number four, you get approved. Your game is placed in the funding club for consideration by qualified investors and publishers. It's leading. It's simple. It's risk-free. You should really apply today at exola.com slash funding or click on the description in this podcast below. Now, let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, it, it, it's always like, you know, there's the, the the interesting ones that are getting picked long before more most of the funds even even realize that there's this type of a company that is looking for funding. And then how how does that happen? Like like what is what how how do you keep your ears to the ground in so many places at the same time? Because when we're talking yeah. about like these especially focus funds, uh, like gaming funds, they're quite small. There's not like 200 employees. Mm. Yeah, I, maybe I can talk about like my ways that I've been exposed to new new companies and founders who I've invested in. So first, uh, I have this angel syndicate, which mm -hmm. I call Joachim Syndicate. Very, very creative. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's close to 130 people now. Um, 
or almost all our uh, previous execs from gaming. So it's really fun, fun to invest together. So we pool money together into this uh, special purpose vehicle, mm-hmm. like a holding company. And then that holding company then invests into a target company. So usually we're doing this 50,000 to 200,000 uh, checks. Uh, it's one line on the cap table because of this special purpose vehicle. So I, I get a, lo- a bunch of uh, deals coming through this group. So every week I'm looking at uh, a possible new team uh, who is raising their pre-seed and they're looking for angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also spend a lot of time on LinkedIn and Twitter and on these private slacks and discords where people are actively posting if they're leaving a job. I, I usually sp- like try to, to ping them on social media to, to see if they're actually mm-hmm. going to go for a startup and just doing a lot of outreach has been working really well. I think the, the second thing here is that my work with Play Ventures, so as, a, as my role as venture partner, uh, it's a quite a tailored one where I'm actually doing a lot more managing of the portfolio companies. So I'm currently helping eight different companies mm-hmm. in the portfolio. and. Also, there has been this privilege that I could actually co-invest into several deals that Play Ventures has been doing. Yeah. Often the, the founders are looking for angels, so it's been a really good good possibility to do that uh, together with the work that I'm doing there. Yeah, it's a double the, 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 Yeah, well, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I, I would say, because the, the role at Play for me now is so much with the portfolio, so it's I, I'm actually it's not necessarily even double dipping because uh, I'm doing investing through my syndicate but I'm doing a lot of hands-on work with the companies mm-hmm. in the portfolios it's 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 an ever-evolving relationship and it's been really great to be with the guys yeah then then a third way um, my LinkedIn uh, inbox is just crazy <laughs> but there's just like the amount of inbound requests there's probably like five to ten inquiries on linkedin right now waiting that i haven't let yet clicked on uh requesting like a, a call or um, that we should we should do a meeting and i could meet up with them um yeah it's just it's pretty pretty cool actually just to have to have find the time for everything so so essentially you have such a strong media presence uh, your own own media through elite game developers uh, as well as the social media that that essentially people reach out to you or listen when you reach out to them because let's be honest like all the founders are getting ton of reach outs from various kind of funds we've never even heard of or various different syndicates that you know you're just not going to engage with so so that's yeah you kind of build your personal brand through that as well so it, it definitely when 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 you invested into Savage, like that was, like I wanted that because I read all the stuff you've been doing, and I wanted you to help us and and help me especially. So uh, that that's really powerful what you've done, and um, kudos for that. Thanks. I was just I was just wondering like yeah. how it happens because I can't I can't imagine going through all these pitches. Like <laughs> you must get yeah. Because yeah. let's be honest, not all of them are great. <laughs> Yeah, it really matters how the founder actually like points out what they're looking for. Because mm-hmm. I, I see there's a lot of copy-paste text going on as well, yeah. where they're spamming everybody. Uh, 
who who has angel investor in their title uh, so I do prefer like tailored messages especially why they think I would be a good fit is really <laughs> valuable uh, because usually I, I do want to help these founders mm-hmm. a lot besides just the investing the capital I want to be involved in, in like seeing that they can actually scale mm-hmm. to the next level so like I don't have experience in uh, like B2B for instance yeah. so I, I usually do turn down a lot of uh, the companies that are doing like tools for developers for instance because oh. I just can't help them uh, so yeah I love those it's tricky. by the way <laughs> I tend to invest because uh, I, I want to use the tool and then I'm like yeah I like mm, this tool and then I like to invest yeah. into it so we're, yeah. we're but overall like what do investors look when they're actually invest money into um, into a company or a game or in, into a game company yeah. let's put it this way yeah like I think I would first focus on the the whole package of what's going on, but then I want to zoom back to the founders because I I think everything in these early stages really reflects to what kind of founders I'm dealing with and like what what are the decisions that they're making right now? What could it look like in the future? Are they, you know, working in the right ways? How do they execute? Um, so have they led teams, uh, what kind of success they've seen in the past? Uh, are they good people? So like really good integrity, uh, like things that I'm not seeing immediately and why not? Um, I, I really want to think about these things usually in these kind of first principles, like asking a lot of why questions mm-hmm. to get down to the bottom of things. And uh, less experience with these founders usually means that they need to pick up a lot of things on the product side, on leading, on hiring. So in the early stages, I often say no, but I do want to follow these companies. And maybe in six months, it's going to be a yes when they've been doing the right things. And because it, it's still going to be that 12 months that you need to work to graduate to the next level in a VC path, like your fundraising, you need to go to the next level. If, if you're going to spend the 12 months learning the basics, uh, it's going to be a really rocky road to raise the next round. Uh, so that's just, you know, how it goes that you, you enter the path of fundraise startups that you need to raise more eventually, mm-hmm. uh, most likely. What I what I wanted to ask is, is there are, there are companies that raise these monster rounds, whether it's like recently the Spike Games or Dream Games had a pretty monster round. Uh, Clank comes to mind. Uh, some other ones as well like how are those done like i understand if 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 you have you know somebody from you know heading blizzard is leaving or you know gm of treyarch is leaving and they've done multi-billion dollar games they can raise a pretty big round uh and it all makes sense because they're starting a new triple a studio but when we're talking about free-to-play and oftentimes even casual games like how does these how do these monster rounds come about? Like, do the same parameters apply, or is it more this sort of a gut feeling and FOMO that that drives them? I think it goes back to thinking about the the graduation mm-hmm. again, uh, like a, a Dream Games or let's say a Riot exec doing a company. They are already graduated a couple of those levels when they when they're kicking off their company. 
uh, and they, they're raising like something that somebody else would call a Series A as their pre-seed mm -hmm. um, or Series B even. Um, I think that that just shows you how much uh, the investor is looking at these stages where the company is at with what they already have. Uh, so like they don't need to go through all those stages because they already been working and building stuff that they know how to do. So they're already here at the, the Series A stage. So I think that that's basically how the, the monster rounds get done. Understand, understand. I was just thinking like, do you have to be an exquisite salesman like, like or saleswoman like we often uh, yeah. perceive? <laughs> And I, I think it, that's part of the, you know, graduation process. Yeah. That you're actually, you know, everybody needs to be a sales person uh, in a way, like when you're raising rounds. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Well, well, let's, then, then there's the counter uh, counterpoint. So, you know, when, when somebody raises a big round, that means that they had a lot of inbound that they're able to negotiate uh, very favorable uh, terms. And, and kind of can either you know raise a monster round or just raise a very healthy round with a very small dilution. Now, the other thing can happen as well where an investor pulls out and the investors you've been talking to, the other ones, will pull out as well. Why is that? Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of this... Um, Sheep mentality. Happening. Yeah, well, it, like... When, when it is a hot deal and it suddenly turns into not so hot, mm -hmm. <laughs> like that can happen. Uh, investors are dealing with like several dozen cases at once, looking at, you know, doing these deals. Uh, and then suddenly they're just preoccupied with the other bigger deals, the ones that matter more to them. And then suddenly your fundraise is deprioritized and then they might just pull out because they just have, don't have the bandwidth to take care of all the deals that they're doing. There's so many reasons why that could happen. And then why the rest reacts to that. Uh, I think there is uh, a herd mentality still uh, in gaming happening a lot um, with, with VCs, with generalist VCs, mm -hmm. with the gaming VCs, where if a founder has been going around uh, talking to a lot of investors for yeah. several months and investors and talk to still, each other yeah they're meeting they're bumping into uh the founders at the next conference and the next one um, it doesn't usually mean that things are going their way uh so yeah there's a lot of things there unfortunately it is that the you're sending constantly signals to, to investors whatever you're doing uh you know suddenly an investor gets a, a bad reference check on you uh, and that causes them to pull out. Yeah. Um, but I, I think um, it's a sign of a, like a strong investor if they can really build this conviction on their own and not just because you got a term sheet already or there's somebody else who got cold feet and left. Like, yeah. I think the, the strong investor will stand by their conviction I, on their own. I think like looking at my own behavior, like I've walked from, from cases as an angel investor just because some of you have walked away. And I admit that in my part, it's just 
either you can call it laziness or being super busy, <laughs> but I just don't have time to invest into figuring out. So what I usually do is I either introduce to you and I introduce to my boy, Eric Suford from another fund. And then yeah. you guys, if you guys are in, then I'm in. And if you guys say no, then I'm not in because I trust you guys. And yeah. because I just don't have the time to do the diligence. Like I just meet with a person. I'm like, oh, this is very interesting. I like the case, but guys do the due diligence and let me know if you're, if you're going in, I'm going in. So Yeah. Yeah. I think like, it, like the further you go into becoming a full-time investor, mm -hmm. I think the more you need to build that understanding and developing that conviction on your own. Yeah. So I would say like angels, totally fine to, to ask me what I'm thinking about yeah. the case. That's, that's totally fine. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, all right. So let's go to the, uh, the final part, um, the pitch. Like I know we're running low on time, so let's just let's just summarize it. Like Joachim, what is a good pitch? Because I've seen so many different ones. I've made so many different ones. Um, you know, how do you set yourself up su to success? And what do you do with a playable? And like, what should you have? Like, is there is there a golden rule on on a pitch? Yeah, I think you want to know what is attractive for investors. Mm -hmm. And you can figure that out uh, by asking, <laughs> like yeah. asking around. Like, like you're doing, let's say, a casual mobile studio. You're doing a, a dress-up game or whatever, like a match tree. Mm -hmm. Put match tree because that's gonna be hard to <laughs> hard sell. <laughs> uh, but then you ask your friends who have dealt with VCs. Maybe you even talk to a VC. How do I make my company attractive for VCs is a question that you can ask. For me, if somebody comes and asks, I think you want to first, you want to have a great team, mm -hmm. like just spend half a year working on building that team. It's not something you want to just put together in a weekend who you can find quickly. Uh, it's, it should be a process where you try to, to bring in the best mix of people preferably somebody who you've worked with already but if you don't have that kind of background then you know become creative in finding the right founders for yourself and then whatever you're building it needs to make sense to be building something like that like today and six months from now uh, that the timing is right and for launching something like that in 12 months um, and I, I think like in a sense, what you want the package to point out is that, hey, this is a this is going to be a billion dollar company in three to five years, like uh, with very high likelihood. And then you start just reverse engineering what you're doing to get there uh, by asking feedback on the pitch from people who know VC, who are VCs or founders. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a good pitch, really. Here's, uh, I think it was in this podcast or another one, uh, where Giga Levy Weiss from NSX, uh, he was, he said that the, what you have to do after you raised your fund is to pivot immediately. <laughs> like that was the craziest thing that I've ever heard from a VC. And it makes all the sense because essentially yeah. you're, you're engaging of game of bullshit of like, Hey, yes. we have much less resources than everybody in the, in the, uh, who we're competing with 
Uh, we're starting from the ground up. Yes, we might have done similar things before, uh, but we're going to try to do the same things with our other hand tied while falling yes. off the plane. I, I totally agree with Gigi. Now I can explain <laughs> why. <laughs> so, you know, you, the best founders are people who are constantly learning and doubting and being paranoid about mm -hmm. what they are doing. Fuck. You know, what they, what they were doing yesterday shouldn't mean anything today. You know, you That's should be crazy. Questioning. You're talking about crazy people. <laughs> yeah, but, but it, it is that way that like you start a pitching process, you fundraise mm -hmm. three months, four months later. If you're still going to be doing what you promised four months ago, it's probably you have a really good opportunity to actually think about like what makes sense right now to be building versus what made sense four months ago. Yeah. Like because you've you've accumulated accumulated so much knowledge from talking to VCs, getting that feedback on what you're trying to do. If you're not doing that, like you should be doing that. So I, I yeah. respect that, but then again you have to build a team around that sort of an agility sure. and that kind of crazy. Yeah. Because most of the I, times I teams come for your vision and that vision can't change yeah. because Teams are very yeah. skeptical of pivots, and then if you start losing sure. team members, then you're fucked. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm probably not talking about like you know we're doing a you know casual game. Now we're gonna do a VR game, like that kind of. Yeah, I, I think the the sales person skills become important also, also towards the team, and I think you want your team also to be on top of realizing what makes sense right now versus what made sense four months ago so uh, constantly talking about like the mission and how you're gonna get the mission done mm. so like i think it doesn't it wouldn't have made sense for dream games to pivot away from match three yeah. far like in any any case like if they would have uncovered something in their pitch process that said that royal match the concept doesn't work who knows maybe they actually pitched another game I d i'm not sure like what the pitch looked like early on but they might have actually done a pivot back to match three because it made sense more than what they were doing when they were left leaving peak and pitching so yeah don't pivot too far that's probably good advice here yeah i would um I would say, like you were talking about mission and vision and stuff like that. I think it's because as founders, we are, uh, you know, there's a Finnish saying, riding a horse, which doesn't make any sense. It's a stupid saying. But we're, we're like, uh, we're, you, you get the saying. But we're, we're always in a rush and always trying to figure out like what we do, if we're, what we're doing makes sense. I think one of the yeah. good advice that I heard from Sophie, it was in, the, uh, in a podcast that is called... Uh, how to kill a game and pivot successfully. Uh, if you haven't listened to that, take a listen. Uh, in that podcast, she talked about you know killing her game, even though she's not a founder, but she runs a studio. Uh, but um, I think the important part that she raised was that she gave the team full clarity, uh, the team or transparency in her case. Like they, the team knew, for example, how much the the, the game costs. Uh, they knew the burn rate. They knew what the targets were being set. They knew when the different kill zone and milestones were. So everybody understood the rules. And when you understand what the uh, what she was, you know, kind of wrestling with, and what kind of decisions she has to make, and when they finally made the decision to kill, it was 
clear for everybody that the game is going to be killed because they understood why it's going to get killed. Um, and I think I haven't tried this too much, but I think I need to be doing more is is to really give context for decision making rather than having this corporation thing is like, no, we're not going to say, you know, how much money we have left and how much money we're spending. I know it can be a little bit stressful, but I think it just gives a little bit better context if you understand that, hey, doing this for the past six months cost us half a million. People are like, wow, yeah. really? It's like, yeah, this is what we got with half a million. People are like, wow, okay, that's not good. And that raises a whole different type of awareness. And I know that it's stressful. Mm. But that's how startups, in my opinion, should be. Yeah. Yeah, I think like it's really a bad idea to actually go into every meeting and say that everything's hunky dory because yeah. <laughs> you want to show that like the progress that you've made so far, uh, what you've learned, what are the issues now yeah. for you to actually reach the next stage? Yeah. And, and, and there's usually always something. And and that, in my opinion, when you give that sort of a clarity, that makes the decision making so much easier on the team level because they get the context. They get the context that they're spending a lot of money. That means they have to move fast. That means that, that, that they have to cut corners where need be, uh, where they don't have enough time to polish things, where, you, where they have to you know enter the market, where they have to move you know, have to validate quickly or kill quickly and move to the next one. I think that's a very important part because if you don't give that context and you just act according to the knowledge you have but the team doesn't have, you will be seen as irrational, uh, as um, as a person who can't hold a conviction, uh, as somebody who doesn't know what he's do or she's doing, um, and really like you're trying to you're trying to move fast, kill fast when your team is trying to build something that is no foundational staple yeah yeah totally all right Joachim as always thank you so much for for your time for sure. all the people who are eager to get investments from you what's the best way to reach you yeah LinkedIn is the best LinkedIn. way to, to reach out and then sure like elitegamedevelopers.com uh, sign up to the newsletter you're gonna be seeing a lot of stuff more of this st same stuff coming up Yes. Over there. Yes, yes, yes. And Joachim is a fantastic person to be in your cap table. This is just my customer statement. <laughs> so on that Me, note, these guys as well. <laughs> <laughs> on that Thanks, note, um, thank you everybody for listening. Hope this was uh, insightful, helpful. Thank you, Joachim, as always, for the conversations. We have these nearly every week. This time we just recorded it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. This was great. Thanks so All much right. for having me. Bye-bye, everybody. See you later, Joachim. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.